and welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell. We are exposed to hundreds of advertisements, marketing efforts and websites each day. How many of those do people actually remember a few hours later? Marketers refer to memorable messages and campaigns as sticky because they stick with audiences long after they've been exposed to them. And web marketing gurus refer to websites that make visitors want to stick around instead of surfing as sticky. So developing sticky marketing requires a different approach than many marketers take when developing their strategy. So that is what what we're going to talk about on today's show. It's all about sticky marketing. And Taking Care of Business is made possible by our friends at the EVU Group, Australia's first multi-brand real estate network. Now, a key part of creating more stickiness in your business is through customer service. Our next guest has studied six Australian organisations that provide the best customer service and had created a unique system to increase loyalty to your business. Customer relations specialist and sought-after speaker, Jackie Scammell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jackie. Great to be here. Good for you to join us. Now, my first question is, who were the six companies that you studied in Australia? Oh, yeah. Fantastic question. Well, I tried to get a good diverse sort of industry snapshot so that it could relate to many. Um, So uh, the first company I interviewed was... um, Volkswagen Group Australia. I thought they were quite interesting given the emissions scandal they had a few years ago and um, really was keen in looking at how they've sort of focused their efforts internally. Um, I then spoke to Bendigo Bank. Um, they, they were a brilliant organisation and really connected us to the, the message around purpose. Um, down here in Melbourne, I spoke to the fantastic leadership group at the MCG, which is, of course, one of the iconic stadiums here, not only in Melbourne but in, in the world. Um, so they, they taught us all their tricks of the trade. Um, I spoke to a big coffee chain called Hudson's Coffee, which is part of the Emirates Leisure Retail Group. So they gave us insights around you know, the speed of service and how they connect with customers in those quick, high-transaction sort of environments. Um, then I spoke to HealthScope. So HealthScope gave me a really good insight into the health sector and the patient care um, and the bedside manner and all of the things that they have to do um, to really, you know, create amazing service for people that are, you know, fairly sick and not feeling not feeling the best. Um, is that five? That's I'm five, to yes. That, that's five. And the six was... <laughs> I've just had a brain. No, that's okay. Um, it, it'll come back to it me. It will come. Now, what what led you to that? So what what what, what was going through your mind to then go, I'm yeah. going to interview, I'm well, going to Brent, pick six, six and talk to them? Well, I, I, I follow, like you, Jackie, I like to listen and read about the best in the best in the world. And I, I was reading a lot of American company sort of books around, you know, customer service, like the Zappos and the Googles and... And I was looking for, where are our stories in Australia? You know, where are the companies in Australia that are being sort of um, shone a light on? So I, I refer to them as the book, in the book as the unsung heroes. And and I really believe that, you know, we don't do a good job in Australia of sort of celebrating those that are doing a great job. And, you know, I think it's a little bit of a tall poppy syndrome that we're all aware of. So I, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to look for those unsung heroes in service and talk about what were the little things 
that they're doing that are having, you know, a big difference, a big impact to their customer service. Yeah. Now, let's just go back to your book. Is this your first book? Yeah, it is my first book published. Yes, that was quite an experience. <laughs> yes, there's a common theme there when I chat to authors about that. Uh, well, firstly, I should say congratulations because it is much harder than I think people talk about. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a real discipline and commitment, but I'm, I'm so glad I've done it and now I'm ready for the for the next one. I'm finding the book, the feedback I'm getting, it, it's very easy to apply. It's a how-to book, so you can literally pick it up and try anything in there and um, yeah it's, it's it's written for all sort of levels of management. Now it is called creating a customer service mindset and in That's it nice. you talk about conscious leadership just tell us a little bit about what that's about. Yeah, so I think one of the things that we've, um, we're realising in service is that not that companies don't know how to serve, but in many cases I think we've just forgotten. So, you know, what I'm seeing is a lot of employees at the front line either sleepwalking or sort of dishing up fairly transactional type service that they're doing relatively automatic. And I think one of the things we need to be mindful of is, is how do leaders wake their staff up, like really shake them up and, and get them to be more alert and pay attention out when they're serving fellow human beings. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is for, for leaders to be able to observe and, 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 and be able to help their employees, they too need to be quite conscious. And there's sort of three things that, um, I guess, assist leaders in being conscious. So one of them is know what your strengths are as a leader and really work work towards that um, and, and, and shine a light on your own strengths because we all have strengths and sometimes I think we forget when we're under pressure and we're stressed. So do what you do best. Mm. The second thing that helps make a leader more conscious is, is mindfulness. So recognise what's around you and recognise, you know, this is what we would refer to as like the social intelligence, like recognise the interaction that's happening between your employee and the customer and the environment and look for clues to be able to help guide a situation. And then the third thing that makes up a conscious service leader is, is values. So so know what's expected of you. And um, if, if we've got those sort of three things coming together and we're being alert ourselves as leaders, then we're probably going to have more of a, a, a culture that is, you know, conscious and will sort of spread right through the DNA of the culture. Yeah, I look, I really love that. I love that, the concept of it. And again, it's something that I think from a mindset perspective that business and particularly marketers need to be speaking about a lot more and that's going to help create, as you say, the sticky customer service in your organisation. Now, uh, Jackie, I noticed that, you know, in your background, you've worked with some of the largest global workforces from in retail, banking, hospitality, and then you've done your six Australian, which is great that you've focused on the Australian because that was always something that annoyed me. It was always about the UK or US. So that was wonderful you've done that. So then, I, then my market research background goes. Okay, what are some common threads? Is there any common themes or threads from all the different businesses that you've worked with globally? The ones that are successful and what they all do well, or are they all so varied? Yeah, it's it's a that's a really good question. I, I would say that the ones that are doing it well globally and, and here in our own backyard in Australia, there's probably three things, Jackie, that I think 
all of these companies have in common. So the first thing is, is that they absolutely made a decision that they have to do better. They're not just, um, you know, happy with good service. They really believe that they're only as good as their last performance and they want to continue to improve and reach that little bit higher. Mm. So they put a line in the sand. The second thing that I see the companies that are really achieving a service mindset that are doing well is that they realise that this stuff doesn't happen in a day. You can't change a culture in a day. If you really want to jump in and try and shift the dial in your service culture or improve the experience that your customers are receiving through the human touch points, that stuff takes time. We're talking about human behaviour and particularly large workforces. So the companies are doing well really have a realistic view on how long this might take. And the third thing, and this is probably the one that I feel most passionate about, is that they all started at the very top. So we've all heard of that expression, a fish rots from the head, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the view of a service belief in a culture. It comes from the very top. And if an organisation isn't engaged on what they want from a service culture at the very top, the CEO, the senior leaders, then it's really hard to have that sort of filter through the organisation. So any type of transformational work or sort of service improvements that they're trying to bring to a whole organisation, they engage the leaders first. And I think they're probably the three biggest themes that I'm seeing, you know, not just here in Australia, but in other pockets of the world as well. Yeah, they're really valuable insights. Mm. Uh, Also in your book you talk about, and and this is an area that uh, is always a challenge, in, in my experience, is consistency. Uh, and you mentioned consistency is a problem. So what are some of the things that leaders can do to tackle this? So I think it's important to get the, the definition of consistency right when we talk about service. I, I came from um, the McDonald's system, Jackie, where I was trained back in the late 80s and 90s, the six steps of Brilliant, a brilliant, a brilliant process. I use McDonald's yeah. as the gold standard, yeah. like all the time. I just think it's fabulous. And sorry, just to go off on a tangent, yeah. I love the drive-through coffee, and I do that a lot because I'm on the road a lot, and mm-hmm. I I have a little bit of a fun with myself. Uh, it's a bit nerdy fun, but I'll go to different drive-throughs, and I measure the the time and the experience. I want to make sure that every time I get, I have a nice day or have a, have a good day or something like that. A, really a, a nice sort of gesture and a nice sort of, um, yeah. you know, to, to make you feel good. And it's consistent every single time. And it blows my mind how they do that because these are teenagers. Like, let's just put this in perspective. Yeah. So the training yeah. system in McDonald's is extraordinary. So sorry to go off on that tangent, but please no, continue your McDonald's experience. <laughs> It's so relevant, and I think what I've learned about that back then, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, um, this sort of repetitive, automated, almost sort of robotic approach to service. Like, you know, if we didn't follow the six steps of service, it was it was it was a fail when when we were audited. But I think what's happening, and just to sort of recap this definition of consistency, is that. The customers, as we know, are driving the expectations of business and they're in control. And and society has evolved through the generations. So we're no longer just wanting consistent steps of service. We're wanting what I call a consistent quality service experience. So what that means is 
we don't exactly want the same exact experience every single time we go to McDonald's or every single time we go to a particular brand or store. But I think what we expect is that every time we go to that same particular brand or store, that we feel good every time we go there. And that's the difference. So it's not necessarily it's the exact robotic sequence of service that we get, but it's a consistent feeling that we walk away always going, oh, my God, that was such a good experience, and we just want to keep going back there. And that's why businesses are challenged now with the fact that they need service to be authentic, to be personal, to to feel unique, because humans want to feel like they're being treated special and not like a number. Yeah, so that one-on-one and personalisation or micro-marketing is a real key trend at the moment. Mm. I think that's really, really important. Now, the other thing too, I just wanted to quickly ask you, I'm also a huge tennis fan, and I noticed (laughs) that you worked at the Australian Open. What were you doing there? Yeah, I've had a couple of different lives at the Australian Open. So for many years I was... um, I was overseeing the the operations of the catering contract there. So my team, we were responsible for delivering all of the food and beverage to, you know, all of the the superheroes on the court, as well as all the family and the general public that were out there to watch a game of tennis. So a huge, big operation. But later in life, I had the privilege of working for Tennis Australia themselves as their director of customer relations. So I got to see the back engine room of, of the event, you know, coming to life and, and, and I got to see all the cool stuff behind the scenes with the players and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, <laughs> we love. And I got to learn a lot more about the sport, you know, and the politics of the sport. So I've, I've, I've experienced 10 Australian Opens where I've been part of delivering that event. And um, it's an extraordinary event. We get like a million customers through the gates, you know, over a two-week period. And there's a lot of money involved and high stakes and, and as you know, some, some big names on the tennis court. Certainly. And so... F- I've always find it interesting. I think that business can learn so much from sport and and a lot of individuals and leaders don't tend to change lanes. They tend to sort of stay in the same industry. So what did you learn from being involved in the sporting arena? Excuse the pun, or so pun intended. <laughs> um, what did you learn from this, from the from the world of sport versus the world of business? Was there anything that was obvious? I would say that the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question is probably, I feel like there's more of an emotional pull and an emotional connection to the brand. So those of of the employees that are working for the brand had a much greater sort of connection to the meaning and purpose of the business. Um, Many people were working there because of their love for the game. Um, but equally, you sort of saw that on the other side of things where you were, you know, dealing with members and customers who were customers of the sport and, and would come to the event, the Australian Open, and they too would feel a deep emotional connection to the brand because of their love for the sport or the love for the player. So when there's heightened emotions involved, it, there's, there's a few more complexities that show up. Mm. Um, and I think as, as leaders of organisations of sport, there's, there's a lot more of that needs to be considered a lot more in your delivery of messages and you know getting people's buying to new systems and processes, etc. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 it, it's so interesting, and uh, that's that's a topic, a whole new topic that we might need to explore further, Jackie, if you're up for it. Um, yeah, sure. Now, the other just just to finish off this really interesting discussion is I noticed uh, you've worked with. Uh, we talked about global, large organisations, but you've also worked with small teams. And I'm always interested about the, the the differences, I suppose, between small businesses and their processes and how they run and their customer service mindset versus those of large organisations that obviously have got a lot more resources. So for someone running a small business, what advice would you give them? Um, I think... The benefit that small businesses have is that, you know, we can keep things quite nimble and um, often the the simplest solution is the best solution. And I think the challenge for big organisations is that sort of the curse of efficiency, which meaning the bigger the companies get, the, the more efficient and smarter their process become. And then all of a sudden they lose... Um, they lose their curiosity and they lose their sort of skill for innovation and asking why and things can become a little bit systematic. So if you are a small business, you know, like myself and you're, um, you're working with customers and clients, be, be proud of the simplistic solutions and the lack of complexity that potentially there is doing business with you because the less obstacles and barriers there are for a customer to do business with you, the better. I mean, at the end of the day, our job is to remove the, the barriers and obstacles from customers. So um, don't try and be anything you're not and embrace the small is what I would say because I think the big businesses could learn a lot from us small businesses. Yeah, that's a really nice way to finish. And just to remind everyone, we are chatting with Jackie Scammell, who's just released her first book, Creating a Customer Service Mindset, How to Create Sticky Customer Service in Your Organization. Thoroughly recommend it. You can buy it all, buy it where all books are sold. Jack, I suppose, would be yep, uh, that's yeah, it. Yep. do it. And people, that's if they want to know more about you, they can follow you, your social media, you're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and JackieScammell.com. Anything else you'd like to add anywhere else that people can find you? Um, yeah, just go to my website and um, there's, a, there's a great video there that talks a bit more about these human touch points. And, yeah, let's, um, let's keep you know, improving those human connections because I think service is a really important part of society. So thanks so much for having me, Jackie. Uh, it's been a delight and great fun. Thanks again for your valuable time. No worries. You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we pick the best brains in the business world. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Jackie Mitchell on RPPFM, Taking Care of Business. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business, a brand new show today, and we're talking about sticky marketing. So we must cover a vital sticky area, and that is brand loyalty, the pinnacle for business growth. And there is a new report from Salmat that claims brand loyalty is being eroded by price sensitivity. I need to know more. So to tell us more about this fascinating insight is Head of Sales and Client Engagement at Selmat, Andrew Lane. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me on. Great. Now let's get stuck into this report. What has this new research revealed? Sure. It's been a really interesting report, actually. We've, uh, we've gone out this year to both a mix of marketers and consumers really to better understand um, yeah, people's views around marketing and channels that they feel are uh, um, of use to them, channels that marketers are actually focusing on and spending time on themselves. Um, but actually one of the key things that came out was this piece that you mentioned around brand loyalty. Mm. Um, 
and in particular how, how brand loyalty we're seeing is essentially being eroded by things like price sensitivity. So, you know, the days of someone being or a consumer being totally brand loyal um, seems to be being strained slightly by, you know, by other factors and, you know, price predominantly being a key one that can really test people's brand loyalty. Uh, I know for myself, um, there's been brands I've been um, kind of loyal to for many, many years. Um, and, you know, as prices increase and as com- competition increases, um, I certainly find myself looking at other options now as well. Um, if even the product I would choose normally becomes too expensive or something else comes in at a, a you know, more cost-effective price for a similar similar service or similar similar offering. Uh, so that was probably one of the most interesting things that came out of the report. Absolutely fascinating. And the other thing that is most interest uh, there was the percentage, 40% of Australian consumers don't consider brands while shopping. Mm, that's, sure. that's enormously high. I was really shocked and saddened in a way because I think what's happening is that uh, a lot of Brands now are still, um, I suppose, operating from an old or traditional business model and they're not being nimble enough and keeping up to date quickly enough or they're not listening or responding to what customers want and customers are so much more powerful today than they ever were and they're sort of like business as usual without – and they really need to disrupt themselves because someone's going to disrupt them for sure. I agree. It's a high high percentage as you – as you pointed out, um, and, and I don't think it means that brand loyalty is, is out of reach for, for brands and mm. for um, marketers who are sort of marketing those brands. I just think it's become become tougher, um, and perhaps we need to just take a, a fresh look at how we drive that same level of brand loyalty that we have done previously. And you know, potentially some brands have almost become a bit complacent um, to, to a loyalty they may have um, relied on in the past. Um, but now we'll certainly find it harder to, to, to drive um, if they're not considering, you know, um, broader areas. You know, price is just one of them. But, mm. you know, understanding our customers better and actually taking um, insights from everything we, we do and should know about our customers to, to drive a better a better offering to, you know, to to their customers. So I don't think it's, uh, it's impossible to drive, but I think it has become a lot harder um, as obviously the consumer landscape has changed over the last few years. Yeah, and it's changed really quickly, and that's the bit that I think that a lot of businesses uh, and brands are being left behind. But this is a wake-up call for them, and I've seen it happening, and it's really frustrating to see. So hopefully with some hard data like this, it might actually make some leaders uh, sit up and listen because the second top challenge in this uh, in this research report was that uh, marketers identified the, the biggest, sorry, the second top challenge was creating customer loyalty. So it's certainly linked. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, that, that was interesting, but not surprising to, mm. to see in, in the report. Uh, and we hope this report does a number of things, certainly um, make brands kind of stand up and listen um, to some of the, the latest research that's out there, mm. um, but also helps the marketers that are kind of working for those brands, either internally or through external um, agency partners like Salmat um, helps them actually start to you know, provide a better um, a better solution and a better outcome for the brands that they're representing. Um, because you, you're right, the, the market is changing and changing pretty rapidly. Mm. Um, so we as marketers need to, to make sure we're across those changes and adapting our um, our approach to ensure that we're providing the best value back to our, our clients and customers in, in many of their challenges, not just in, in brand loyalty, but in all of the other challenges they face in what is a increasingly tough um, tough market at the moment. 
Yeah, there's a real disconnect between what marketers are doing and what consumers find important. And that was concerning and that came out very clearly in, in your report as well. Uh, but the research also showed that first and foremost, consumers look for good value for money and competitive pricing was 85% before yeah. anything else. But I suppose my question for that and any marketers listening how do you define value and then how do your consumers define value? And I think the definition of value is the key there because a lot of, a lot of small-minded businesses as all small-minded leaders refer to value directly with the cost of something and it's so much deeper and so much more than that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You'll, you'll see from the research that um, when we asked marketers, it's a bit embarrassing even, them, but not even all of them could mention what the four Ps actually are. Um, and, you know, price is a key oh. part of one of those four Ps. Yeah. Um, but certainly price alone isn't going isn't to drive um, loyalty or a, the sale of a, of a, um, of a product. Um, so when we consider the other four Ps, you know, products crucially important. And for me, I think products and price combined really talks about value. Um, so, you know, price and being the cheapest is going to get you somewhere. But if your product's not um, strong enough or it's not as evolved and adapted, um, I think, you know, the, the value of an offering can be can be certainly compromised. Um, for me, I'm happy to pay a bit more for something if I believe there's value behind it. So if the product's good enough, um, then, you know, I, I'm happy to, to, to push that a little bit further perhaps than I otherwise would on price. Um, but even if the price was cheap, if the product's um, not fit for purpose or it's not, um, evolved, as I said, you know, over, over the times, um, you know, the cheapest price wouldn't be enough to sway me. So I think your point around value is crucially important. Uh, we certainly shouldn't just look at being the cheapest. We should look at um, what can we offer a customer in the total value proposition. Um, and to me, that probably comes out of a combination of both products and price out of those four Ps. Yeah, well, uh, there's so many, so many layers to, to that, Andrew. But uh, I would like to say also that I think value, it's driven by emotion. And that's the bit that a lot of marketing, marketers are missing. They're so focused on the functional, the functionality of their brand and the rational side, which is price. But it's all about when you uh, buy a brand or you have some involvement with that brand is how it makes you feel. You know, like that, sure. that's, that's the key to, you know, brands like Rolex because that, because that, they buy a Rolex watch, it still tells the time as a Casio does, you know, it doesn't matter what brand it is, but it's about how the, that brand makes you feel as a customer. And I think that's a really key area too. But isn't that disturbing that a lot of marketers don't know the four Ps? That just makes my hair stand on end. And I'm just like to say that anyone listening here, if you are engaging a marketing professional, please check their credentials. <laughs> Always, always, because uh, I'm a bit worried about that. Anyway, let's get back to this report as I've, sure. as I've deviated on here. Now, it seems also marketers are unable to deliver brand loyalty due to technology challenges. What are some of the uh, tech challenges for marketers? Yeah, I, I think that the way I've uh, kind of digested that, um, that part of the, the research is, um, yeah, marketing is hard today. There's so, much, so, so many different technologies involved. Um, and because of that, there's just a wealth of data available um, to a marketer or to a brand to actually you know, really understand their customers and their customers' behaviours. Um, so, you know, gone are the days of um, you know, a customer just engaging with your brand in, in one dimension or in one one channel. Mm. Um, you know, we've got digital and traditional channels, and even in digital, you've got people engaging on mobile devices, on laptops, on tablets, on TVs, or on a variety of connected devices. So, I think just the wealth of choice. For a, um, for a consumer to connect with a brand now 
uh, you know challenges around actually how we how we fully understand um, those customers' behaviours. Um, so the biggest thing for me is um, when brands or marketers fail to actually use the available data to actually understand their customer better. Um, so that was probably what stuck out, uh, stood out to me as the most most alarming thing. Um, yes, it's getting harder, um, but it probably means it's more important than ever to actually really get to the bottom of, of really truly understanding your customer. Yeah, well, it's all about human to human now. And I think with the advent of technology, it's actually highlighted how important human relationships are. And I was so mm. pleased to see that come out in your report that that one-on-one uh, relationships and face-to-face is still king and queen when it comes to customer service and customer loyalty. Sure. And I think the other thing it drives for me is the need for a, a, a truly personalised approach as well. You know, consumers are now not okay with a, a one-size-fits-all broad brush approach. They want to feel valued. They want to feel like uh, the, the offering being presented to them is, is, is personalised to them and to their behaviours and to their interests. Um, so I think that's a key area where um, you know access to that data now is, is better than ever. Um, but if it's not used correctly and you create an experience that isn't um, as personalised as it could be, um, I think it's very easy and quick to turn consumers off um, because they feel like you're just not really taking enough interest in, in who they are. Um, so I think it's certainly become harder, but by being harder and by the, the, the wealth of additional data available, it actually enables those marketers and those brands that are doing this well to actually really stand out from the crowd. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great report and I love the personalisation, the one-on-one experience, that micro-marketing. I think absolutely that is what's happening right now to, for, for successful marketers uh, and to continue our personalised theme. Andrew Lane, Head of Sales and Client Engagement at Selmat, thank you so much for your valuable time today. Now, those listening that want more information about this report and Selmat, where should they go? Um, just to our website, Salmat.com.au. Um, they'll be able to find lots of information that we put out through our blog, um, but also download a copy of the report as well. Um, some really interesting reading, so I would urge um, readers to you know, to download the report, familiarise themselves with some of the findings. If you aren't sure on the four Ps, just remind yourself what those four Ps are as well. But some really interesting findings, both from marketers and consumers in that report. So thanks for having me on the show and I urge people to, to download the report and have a read for themselves. Yeah, and, and it's free to download as well, isn't it? It is, yeah, absolutely. Great. Just an email address is all you need to, uh, to, to download that report. Easy, terrific. Andrew Lane, thanks again. Really appreciate your precious time. No problem. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. We hope you're enjoying eavesdropping on this fascinating conversation as we talk about sticky marketing. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Jackie Mitchell on RPPFM, Taking Care of Business. Our next guest has written a new book called Truth, Growth, Repeat, a business manual for Generation Y, but W-H-Y. I love that. Award-winning brand purpose expert and author, Mike Edmonds. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Now, Generation Y, I did love that. It did make me uh, smile. Why is everyone talking about purpose at the moment? It's all about finding their why. Yeah, I think um, this has come about mostly because... um the old traditional ways of doing business are working less and less effectively. I think in particular uh, in my area of marketing and branding, the uh, return on advertising just isn't what it used to be. So mm. as usual, business owners are looking for the, the silver bullet, the, the next um, kind of answer to, to, to solve this problem and get them better returns on their um, 
on their branding and marketing. Yeah, in your book, uh, I had a, a quick look at bits of it. I didn't. I must confess, I didn't read it all. But one bit that did stand out for me, I found particularly curious, is you cover why is purpose being dangerously misunderstood by company owners? Why is that? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think business is very good at picking up on a trend and then um, kind of spoiling it straight away. Um, Purpose is not something you just get off the shelf. You don't. I say in the book, you don't need a purpose. You need your purpose because purpose only works when it's the truth. Um, organizational purpose is, is effectively just what is your genuine motive for being in business and what is the, the value that that brings to the world that's going to set you apart from your competitors. So you can't fake it. And I'm seeing already clients coming to my company and saying, hey, I think I need one of those purpose things. Can you give me one of those? <laughs> and you say, no, I'm sorry, we have to find it inside you. It has to be true. It has to be real. Otherwise, it won't work because that's the whole point of it. Yeah, I must admit there's this uh, trend at the moment about following your passion, but it's that passion versus reality. And quite often a lot of entrepreneurs or small business people are follow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the corporate world and follow my passion, and it's a complete disaster. Yeah, look, look a passion without commercial viability is just a hobby. And I think a lot of people are actually making the mistakes of um, pursuing a hobby that they hope will will pay them, uh, you know, earn them a living. Mm. And it's not as easy as that. I think um, you have to be a little more wise to, um, you know, where, where's the win-win, not only for you and your fulfilment, but for the customer and perhaps even for society uh, in general. So if someone is trying to find their purpose, what are some of the tools that you would recommend they use? Well, there's a number of things you can do. And, and like a, any good religion, it's, it's the, the, the tools and the methods yeah, shared in the book are really a collection of what we've learned over the years um, from many different sources that really work. Some are from uh, human resources training, some are from actually from religion, some are from, you know, hard fact, factual business stuff. But um, some of the examples we use, some of the exercises are um, uh, imagine that you're company um, is, has, has died. Imagine that you're at the funeral for your company. Who, who would come to that funeral and, and what would they say as, as the coffin's going into the ground? It's a, it's a really interesting kind of zoom out and, and have a look at the impact that you're making you know, um, on the world. Um, another really good one is um, called protest, which is my favourite because I, I think business owners are more often driven to, to make a real difference by what makes them angry or frustrated than necessarily just by pure optimism. So the protest exercise is one where you, you, you say, what would you go out onto the streets today and protest against uh, uh, that you think is wrong in, in your category of business or in the world? Mm. Um, for example, I would imagine Steve Jobs would have gone out onto the street and complained that personal computers were too impersonal and they didn't, didn't have any humanity or creativity to them. They, didn't, they weren't really good at expressing ourselves. And so he said about making the Mac something that was more intuitive and, and, and had better typography and so forth. So those are two exercises that we use to sort of surface what's inside you and what, what, what's really going to drive you to achieve something that's, um, that means something to you that you think the world needs. Yeah, that's, I, like, I like those. I'm, I'm going to try a few of those. Now, you talk also about the circle of true purpose. What does that mean? This is just a very simple system um, for understanding how we think the world works today uh, and, and will in increasingly work um, as 
uh, it becomes more transparent and as, as more and more smart young school leavers leave school and university and want more than just money, they want to make a difference. Um, and so it's a very simple pattern of behaviour of what happens when you start with your true purpose and set about proving to the world that you're serious about it. Mm. And it also really works by showing what happens if you start with just a money-first mindset and go the other way around the circle, which I have to say is the conventional way of doing it at the moment. So we compare those two ways, and a lot of people really recognise themselves in this little um, system, and they, they, they kind of smack their forehead with their palm of their hand and say, oh, my God, I've been going the wrong way around the circle. That's exactly what I've been doing. So it can become like a little um, a, a compass to help you make business decisions that are going to give you much better long-term growth and, and personal fulfilment. Okay, you can find, obviously, the detail of that in your book, Truth, Growth, Repeat, a business manual for Generation Y. I love the title. Now, Mike, I'm curious uh, from your perspective because you've had an incredibly impressive career and I'm interested in your view on how you believe the concept of brand has changed over the last, I suppose, 10 years. Yeah, um, it's, it's fascinating. I've been lucky to, to live through quite a, quite a uh, number of changes in the whole idea of capitalism because I've always thought that marketing and branding exist at the point of the whole process of, of, you know, running a business where a company has to sort of go out into the world and and what they ask people like me to do is really telling about how how confident they are in their own company and how how much value they think they really offer. So the big change is that um, 10 years ago you could have a brand image that had no real connection to uh, who you were as a company. Like the, the board of many of my clients 10 years ago would have only really just signed off on brand image campaigns and slogans and, and so forth. They wouldn't even really take much interest in it. That was one of those things they just thought they had to have. Mm. Today, though, with the rise of the internet and the fact that any customer now can, can, can share their true experience of your company instantly and globally... There is no real difference. There's no gap between brand, image, and company. It, it is just the it is the same thing now. Um, so the, the 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 difference is a brand has to be a reflection of your truth. Otherwise, you're just kidding yourself. You're going to be like a little kid with chocolate all over their face, pretending they didn't steal the chocolate bar. Yeah. You're going to be found out, and you're going to be scrabbling around trying to fix it. So the difference I would imagine um, is the, the biggest one is that there is no brand image and company anymore it's the same thing yeah it's interesting that you know from a cultural perspective there used to be company values and i know i'm old enough to remember that as well there would be company values and then there'd be brand values and they actually would be different so now they've sort of merged yeah there's a third thing as well which is then what actually happens i've I've, you know Mm. i've had experience of companies that have all these fantastic slogans behind their receptionists on the wall and here to serve you and excellence and quality. And in the boardroom, they have values like trust and, uh, you know, governance. And then they make really dodgy decisions and, they, and they, they prove very quickly to their staff that they're actually not following those values. They're, they're, they're either feeding their own bank accounts or they're, um, they're wanting to, you know, have a big success and then move on to the next company as a CEO or something. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, company values and mission, mission and vision and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's been outed now. People are tired of being told one thing and then having the company behave in a different manner. And whether it's an oil company, you know, stuffing up a, the latest spill or whether it's a, an airline dragging someone off 
and then you know trying to run ads saying we're the friendly we're the friendly airline. It just doesn't work anymore. So yeah. just you know just find out what your truth is and, and forget all the all the spin and all the exaggeration and hyperbole and just just tell the truth. Well, it's so much more transparent now because the power's gone to the consumer now but, and social media has enabled that and there was some um, stats I was reading the other day which I found interesting that you may or may not know but the Oxford word of the year for 2013 was hashtag it's actually not a word it's a symbol but it was hashtag 2014 it was selfie but 2016 the word was post truth Oh, okay. Which yeah. was, I thought, really interesting considering what our conversation has been about this morning. And it, I think it's a real, uh, I suppose, a reflection of what society's now expecting. And that's exactly what you're talking about in your book. Yeah, and I think the, the main thing that I want to leave business owners with in particular is uh, it's very important. Um, people won't buy from you just because you're telling the truth, just because you're an on, honest person. What, what, what happens when you explore your, your truth and say, okay, uh, I'm going to set out to prove to the world through my company that, that I believe, let's say, um, you know, that the uh, bicycle industry needs, that needs a better kind of bicycle. Um, what you do with that is you'll attract designers and engineers and staff who, who really catch that idea and love it as much as you. And together you'll help prove that this is a viable idea by what you do. So truth only is appealing when it leads to really good innovation and service and, and when it leads to industry breakthroughs and new products. Um, that's that's why the truth works with people because when you say, hey, I brought out this product because I have a personal belief. I haven't just gone out and researched what people want. I've got a personal belief that this is what the world needs. When people look at that product and they experience it and they and they actually experience a, a an authentic value, exactly how you're describing it, they suddenly go, hold, hold on a minute, I think this might be a company who's telling me the truth. Mm. I think there is a difference between what they say in advertising and who they are really in the boardroom. Yeah. Holy moly, I'm, I, might, I might give them more business. So at least this kind of virtuous circle of um, you and your customer sharing this truth and, and, and making it better and better. So I think it's an important point because a lot of people who believe in purpose uh, are trying to convince you that today's consumer wants to buy from honourable companies. And that's true, but it's only a very small percentage of, of, of the consumer um, you know, numbers at the moment. Yeah. Well, uh, that's an, a nice way to leave it. But I know, Mike, that this is a conversation that I'd like to continue at some point. I loved having you on the show. But let's talk about this book, Truth, Growth, Repeat, a business manual for Generation Y. I assume it's everywhere you can buy books. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, pretty much uh, airport, Dimmix, Collins, you know, the, the big ones, a yep. couple of little independents, but mostly the, the, the usual big places. And, of course, online, Amazon and Apple and that. And it's very much a, um, a jargon-free... Uh, use a manual to sort of um, look inside yourself and, and, and help bring out what is it you think the world needs and then how to apply that to a business. Yeah, it'd be a great book for someone wanting to start their own business, I would think. So a yeah, great, I'm, a great I'm, getting, gift. I'm getting a lot of good feedback in that respect. People are reading it and then handing it on to people that they know who are just about to or who are thinking of you know, starting their own business, and that's exactly when you should really look at this sort of work. Yeah, that's great. Well, Mike Edmonds, thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to the next time we chat. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. I am picking some of the best brains in the business world. I love it. Great fun. And we'll be right back after this. You know, I love Audible PFM, particularly Taking Care of Business, because it makes my business awesome. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. 
That's the end of the show. Can't believe it goes so fast. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation today, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot, but you can grab this show on the podcast on the RWPFM website, rwpfm.com.au, or follow us on social media. Thank you to all of our worldly guests today, and we look forward to your company next Friday, 11 a.m. In the meantime... Keep taking care of your business.